We're in a series that has, is titled Imagining the Kingdom. And we started in that series, speaking from Hebrews chapter 11 and 12 uh, into chapter 13. Then last week we came over to the book of Ephesians and we're, we're looking at in particular this, this um, metaphor of God's uh, kingdom that is adoption. It's a family and um, made the case that that is the uh, really the driving metaphor of the whole letter to the Ephesians. And so if we want to understand Ephesians, we need to understand adoption. And so uh, we laid out adoption, a, a bit of what it lo- was in, in the Roman world and what it was then, but today we're going to get behind it and understand a bit more about um, the mechanics, if you will, of adoption and, and what we see here in Ephesians 1. So our text is actually the same text that we had last week, but we're going to be looking at it because there's so much to draw from it, looking at it from a different angle. So uh, uh, the subtitle for this message is Adopted and Appointed Heirs of God. And our text is uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. I will read it in the New International Version, and then we will work <coughs> our way through this. So if you would join me in reading God's Word. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us, in Him, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with His pleasure and will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth um, uh, in Christ or under Christ as it says there. In him we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of His glory, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you are marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory." Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your words are light to our path, and they are life to our souls. Lord, enliven your words in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Who am I? It's the title of a poem written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer while in the Flossenburg prison awaiting execution under Nazi Germany. Who am I? They often tell me I step out from my cell, calm and cheerful and poised, like a squire from his manor. Who am I? They often tell me I speak with my guards freely, friendly, and clear, as though I were the one in charge. Who am I? They also tell me I Bear days of calamity serenely, smiling and proud, like one accustomed to victory. Am I really what others say of me? Or am I only what I know 
of myself. Restless, yearning, sick, like a caged bird, struggling for life breath as if I were being strangled, starving for colors, for flowers, for birdsong, thirsting for kind words, human closeness, shaking with rage at power lust and pettiest insult, tossed about waiting for great things to happen, helplessly fearing for friends so far away, too tired and empty to pray, to think, to work, weary and ready to take my leave of it all. Who am I? This one or the other? Am I this one today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once before others a hypocrite and in my own eyes a pitiful, whimpering weakling? Or is what remains in me like a defeated army, fleeing in disarray from victory already won? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest me. O God, I am thine. Bonhoeffer's wrestling is familiar to most of us in some sense. Am I a hypocrite? Am I authentic? His outward behavior that others saw, is that who he is? Or was it his inward fears and temptations that only he knew? Is that who he is? It begged the question, which one is really me? In the end, neither. His identity was that he belonged to God. In the 1970s, the decade I grew up in as a child, people left their family, people, and place seeking to answer the question, who am I? Rocky, one of the greatest movies ever made, just for the record, when he realizes that he can't beat Apollo Creed, tells Adrian, all I want to do is go the distance. Nobody's ever going to go the distance with Creed. And if I can go the distance, when that bell rings and I'm still standing, I'm going to know for the first time in my life that I weren't just another bum from the neighborhood. Or little orphan Annie, who had grown up finding her identity in the hope that her parents would come back for her. She had to lose that hope in order to find a new identity as the daughter of Daddy Warbucks. Now, these are fictional characters here, unlike um, Bonhoeffer. I guess I need to put my phone on Do Not Disturb. Somebody's texting me, apparently. (laughs) Thank you, sir. Those fictional characters, though, are so engaging for us because they connect us to something that we all wrestle with, and that is our identity. Who we imagine ourselves to be affects our lives. It affects our lives. In our text, last week we explored the controlling theme of Ephesians, our adoption by the Father in Jesus Christ. To understand Ephesians, one must understand adoption. This week I want to I want to go deeper into the same text and explore the adoption ritual which has been given to us. An adoption ritual that rewrites our origin story. It's captured in two words in our text, in Christ. In Christ. 
Paul uses the phrase in Christ, or equivalent phrases, 39 times in the book of Ephesians. It's kind of important to understanding the book of Ephesians. In the 12 verses of our text, it occurs nine times, and that's even after removing two of those, who refer to, which refer to, like, for instance, our hope in Christ, which puts Christ as the object of something, another that is our faith in Christ. So I've taken those out. You still have nine that speak of the sphere in which we live, in Christ. The sphere in which something is done on our behalf, in Christ. On the one hand, our being in Christ is an important truth for Paul. That's obvious. On the other, he doesn't explain it here, but assumes that the Ephesians and us know what it means. Like, oh, well, in Christ you got this. Oh, got it. And yet most of us are going, what? How does that work? At least I am. I don't know about you. I I try to read every new book printed on the topic, usually under the heading Union with Christ. That's kind of what that is called in theological terms, our union with Christ. And often it feels like it is explained by simply saying it again. You know, like defining a word by using the word. It, it goes something like this. To be in Christ is so important because it means that we are in Christ. Yeah, I got that, but I still don't know what it means, right? <clears throat> or, in Christ is a vitally important truth and we become in Christ when we believe. Okay, that's fine, but that's a bit like uh, someone saying to you, you are a cryon, and when you ask what a cryon is, they simply say, well, you become a cryon when you believed. Right, but what's a cryon? Haven't gotten there, and for those that wonder what a cryon is, and I did not know, but I found it on Google, um, <clears throat> I simply put in name of alien races that is obscure in fictional, you know, science fiction. And we got Cryon, it's from, it's an alien race in Doctor Who, which I've never seen. So, there you go, that's a Cryon. <clears throat> the, the work I go through to illustrate these things for you, I mean, you know. <laughs> you're wondering how these amazing illustrations get pulled together, right? <laughs> okay, maybe not. <clears throat> Paul assumes an understanding in Ephesians and tells us all the wonderful things that it means for us. But understanding it sometimes feel like, feels like trying to catch a greased pig. What exactly is it that we're trying to understand? I think there is clarity to be had, which in turn helps us understand why it is assumed by Paul and not explained in Ephesians. <clears throat> we're going to explore the ritual and origin story of our adoption by God the Father under three headings. Uh, recap and revamp, recreation and baptism, responsibility and reason. So, under that first heading, recap and revamp, let me uh, read verses 9 and 10 afresh in the NIV. He, God, made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment to bring Unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ or in Christ. <clears throat> There's a word, I, I've used recap and revamp, but that's only because I didn't want to put in the heading a longer word that might scare you. Um, but it is an important word, and it's a word recapitulation. Okay, recapitulation. In classical music, in the sonata form, there is this final section in the piece called the recapitulation. 
We get our word recap from recapitulation, but a recap is simply a summary, and a recapitulation could be simply a summary. But generally speaking, when something is recapitulated, like in a sonata, it repeats the themes that it began with, but it does it with a whole new twist. And so when we think of recapitulation and in the biblical theological sense, it's a recap or a restatement of the story in summary form, but with a whole new twist. That's why I use the word revamp, recap and revamp. It, it twists, it changes that summary, if you will. Recapitulation is a theological term as well. In the second century, Irenaeus, um, well, Irenaeus uh, Tertullian, um, Theodoret, they, they spoke of this, and they spoke of it from verse 10 in our text. And I'll explain why and how they got that <clears throat> from verse 10 in our text in a moment. But they spoke of that concept, and we, we see recapitulation in, in uh, Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ. How many of y'all saw The Passion of the Christ many years ago now? It's been out. Well, it, you see it in the opening. Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, if you recall, sweating drops of blood. A, a Satan figure is looking on, and a serpent comes from um, uh, him to Jesus, and Jesus eventually becomes resolute, standing and crushing its head. Now, now, that scene described that way is not found in our New Testaments, right? I mean, you don't see that scene described there. But it is a recapitulation. Um, <clears throat> Gethsemane, we know from, from Scripture, it's a garden. And, and it's really a recapitulation of another garden story with a significant and surprising twist. You remember the first garden, of course, where Adam and Eve were tempted by a serpent and they, what, they failed the test. So here's another garden story. Jesus is sweating great drops of blood. He has this anxiety and this temptation at its greatest weight. Oh, and here's the surprise. He passes the test. The second Adam passes the test. Two gardens, both a place of uh, testing, but a different ending. In Christ, a recapitulation has happened. When Paul says in Christ, he's really talking about a recapitulation, which he does explain. You see, the gospel is a retelling of the whole story of God's work with humanity, but with a whole new twist. The first story ended in death because man continually failed and was unfaithful. Adam was unfaithful. Israel was unfaithful. We could walk down the line of unfaithfulness. But Christ was faithful. The word recapitulation is actually in our text in verse 10. Not, not in most English translations, of course, because most English translations, the target is an 8th grade reading level, and of course, that's, it's not going to hit. But when you have a word that's really important, it might ought to be left there. And I think this is one of those moments when it's really important. In in verse 9, Paul tells us that the mystery of God's will, which was purposed or set forth in Christ, resulted in, verse 10, literally, new management to, to be put into effect. New management for the fullness of time, recapitulating all things in Christ. Now, bringing unity to all things in Christ, does that, is that part of it? Sure. In other words, when you're summing up, you're kind of telling the whole story at once. So, okay, there's an aspect of unity there. 
And, and just to say summarizing everything in Christ doesn't quite capture it. The, the, the word, if you, if you take that word, <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of a funny thing they did. And there's a, um, if, you, if you take, it, by the way, it's eight syllables. I, I want to pronounce it just because it's eight syllables to see if I can. Under pressure, you know, it's one of those kinds of things. I don't know, wouldn't do you any good, but it's something like anakephaleosasthai. Anakephaleosasthai. There you go. Now, if you take that and you translate each form, you know, each part of a word, each piece of a word, you know, the prefix, the, the heart of it, and you translate it into Latin, you get this word. And this is what they did in translating into Latin. Recapitulationem which is where we get what word? Recapitulation, of course, right? Um, <clears throat> so that's, that's really a dr- very direct translation from Greek to Latin to English, if you will. Um, to recapitulate is to summarize or retell the main parts with a fresh twist. Some examples of recapitulation in the Gospels. And this will help you kind of get a picture of what I'm talking about when I say recapitulation. We, we know the story of Israel as God's son. They're delivered and immediately go through the Red Sea into the what? The wilderness, where they are tested with hunger and fail the test. They don't go into the promised land, but the next generation actually goes through another ri- uh, body of water, the Jordan River, into the promised land. Jesus comes along and is baptized in the Jordan River. A voice from heaven declares that he is God's beloved son in whom he is well pleased, and, but he then enters the wilderness, not the promised land, before his ministry, which will be in the promised land. He is tested with hunger, and he passes the test. Each test is introduced with, if you are the son of God. Now remember, God delivered Israel, saying to Pharaoh, Israel is my son, my firstborn son. But they failed the test. Jesus, God in his baptism says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. He goes into the same kind of wilderness Tested in the same ways with hunger, and he passes the test. Resummarizing the story with a whole new twist. Okay? You might wonder, why, why are you spending so much time on this? Because it's important to you and me and our adoption. You just sit, hold on a moment, we'll get there. Okay? In John's Gospel, <clears throat> and of course, John's Gospel begins with Genesis 1-1, in the beginning was, right? Well, but he changes it a little, the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. A little twist there, a little recapitulation. It's all through the gospel. <clears throat> we find that. But um, we have a new garden story. Different than the, I mean, it's similar to the Gethsemane garden story, but here in John's gospel, Jesus is crucified where there is a garden. There's a tomb in the garden, and he's buried there. And on the Easter morning, the women think that he is actually the gardener. But remember, Adam was the gardener. God put him there to t- take care of it, right? And so... <clears throat> Now we have another garden, which is not the start of the first creation, which is dying, but the start of the new creation, which is being made new. So Jesus the gardener, Adam the gardener, recapitulation, a whole new ending. Are you tracking with me on recapitulation? You with me on this? Okay, now I can go to the next point. I'm almost ready to. See, in all of these, the original story is one of unfaithfulness, failure of the management plan, if you will, under Adam or Moses or Israel as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, and the new story in Christ under new management plan, grace in Jesus Christ, the plan of God's Son, is a similar story but with a big twist that He is faithful and that God is making all things new. 
in Christ, the whole story is retold, recapped with a twist. Theodoret, in the early 4th century, he's a bishop and theologian, he wrote this, By recapitulation, he, Paul, means the complete transformation of things. For through the gift given through Christ, the Lord, the human nature is raised anew and puts on incorruptibility. Well, that leads to our next heading, recreation and baptism. And here we're going to see that baptism is a ritual of recapitulation, specifically recreation. Hebrews 12 calls the church, you may remember this from our, a few weeks ago, we were there, uh, the church of the firstborn, who is Jesus, the firstborn from the dead, according to Colossians. In our Easter message this year, Resurrection and Real Hope, we explored the fact that Jesus, when Jesus died, since he made all things, if he, the creator, died, then all things die in him. Everything died. When he was raised, the new creation began. He is the firstborn of the new creation. <clears throat> Therefore, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. Why? Because he's a new creation. If you're in him, you're a new creation. Okay? In Colossians, where Jesus is called the firstborn of all creation and the firstborn out of death, we are also told that having died with him, we are, quote, buried with him in baptism, in which we are also raised with him through our faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, that same thing is articulated even more clearly in Romans 6, verses 3 through 5. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, and we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. <clears throat> As I've pondered, what is so difficult to understand about our union with Christ, what it means to be in Christ? And I've beat my head on this one. I'm a drummer, so like I beat a drum, man. I mean, it's just... I beat my head on this over and over, but it began to dawn on me that it's because we have a weak theology of baptism. Therein is the key to understanding what it means to be in Christ. We were baptized into Christ. How do we get in Christ? (laughs) There's the story, right? There's the enactment of the story. Baptism is a kind of a theology of the church that swung from one end of the pendulum to the other. I mean, leading up to the Reformation, it had become not only essential, but salvific. I mean, it, you know, you got to baptize them so they can go to heaven. If they didn't get baptized, they're going to hell, I mean, or limbo, or, you know, all sorts of things made up about that, but won't go there. <coughs> Today, it has become an optional extra. It's been reduced at best to an outward sign of an inward commitment. We can all say that by heart. It's an outward sign of the inward commitment. I don't even know if we know what that means, but um, it's what we say. When people ask the apostles what they must do to be saved, they answered, repent and be baptized. If you ask people today what you must do to be saved, they say, well, pray this prayer with me. And they give you the sinner's prayer, one way or the other. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with the sinner's prayer, for the record. But there is something wrong with substituting one instruction for the biblical one. It's just wrong. 
I, show me in the Bible where anyone answered the question, what must I do to be saved with pray the sinner's prayer? It's just not there, but we have example of the other. I think that it grows out of our Gnostic view of the world which, in which bodies don't matter. In other words, all that matters is our soul. This bodily stuff doesn't matter. So what does it matter whether you get wet or don't get wet? How could that possibly matter? Well, I would answer because God said it does. That is a thing. Baptism is a unification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection by faith. It is an act of faith that we have been joined to Christ by faith in his death as our death. So in baptism, well, since we're dead in Christ, they go ahead and bury us. Right? That's what you do with dead people. You bury them. Right? And then we're raised with him. Now, we're saved by faith alone, right? Through grace. I mean, it's grace alone through faith. I mean, it's, it's faith. So what's baptism got to do with it? Well, we baptize because of our faith in these very things. And since Christ told us to baptize, our not doing it would be to not have faith. That he knew what he was talking about. So yes, faith is by grace through faith. Absolutely. But what does faith mean? Well, for one, it means obedience. And we come out of that grave to new creation life. In this act, we're bodily acting out our belief that we died with Christ and are raised into new creation in Him. Which means we are also raised into a new family. We've been adopted. God's family. Recapitulation. Jesus referred to his death as a baptism. So the baptism which I'm about to undergo, referring to his death. Why would death be a baptism? Well, in baptism we, we enter into the water, and in death we enter into the, the waters of chaos. Like in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was what? Without form and void. There was no life. It was chaos. It was death. But then God begins to speak order and life, and things start coming together, and he raises life right out of the waters. In baptism, we enter into the waters of death, of chaos once again. See, it's not just one story that's being recapitulated in baptism. There are so many stories that are being recapitulated in baptism. Creation is reversed in uncreation when we go into the water. But then we are separated from the water again and raised into new creation, recapitulation. <clears throat> and then in Romans 6, 5, where it says we are united with Christ, both in his death and his resurrection, it means more than simple union per se. It means that we've been connected in birth or grown together, almost like taking something through the process of hybridization, joining it to another plant so that they produce one new plant. We're joined with Christ. We're unified with Him. We're born together, if you will, anew in Him. Recapitulation. By dying with Christ and being raised with Him, we're also joined together such that He is in us and we are in Him. His resurrection is our resurrection, and therefore His existence in the new creation is our existence in the new creation. Paul could assume an understanding of what it means to be in Christ because he knew that the audience had a good theology of baptism. So it would make sense. But we also know that baptism is on his mind when he's writing Ephesians because while he's explaining 
how this new household is to live in relationship to each other, he writes this, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of your calling you have received, or of that calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith. What's the next one? One baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We are adopted by the Father in that one baptism. That's the ritual act of that adoption, if you will. There's one body, one body of Christ where we're all joined into Him. According to Corinthians, we're baptized into that body by one Spirit. All these themes are right here in Ephesians. It's all connected. What is baptism? (coughs) Baptism is an outward act, a bodily act, if you will. I like bodily better. (laughs) Of our faith, our belief that all things were made by him, and therefore when he died, he died the death of all creation, and that in his resurrection all things can be raised in him. It is an acting out of a new origin story. Baptism is an enactment by faith of our entrance into the new creation, the body of Christ, which is the beginning of the new creation and the family of God. Those aren't three things, they're one. Christ is the firstborn. The rest of us, if he's the firstborn of many brothers and the firstborn of that new creation, guess what? We're part of that new creation as his brothers, as his brothers and sisters. And so we are born into that new creation, which is his family, which is the body of Christ. baptism recapitulates the creation story into the water of chaos and out again the crossing of the red sea deliverance through water the crossing of the jordan into the promised land inheritance the death burial and resurrection of christ and much more baptism recapitulates the story of the flood of noah everything dies in the water and a new world exists on the other side of the water Baptism recapitulates birth itself. We came out of the water from our mother's womb and now return to the water and come out anew. Hence the obvious connection to adoption. Baptism takes all these abstract ideas and enacts them in a concrete way bodily. We feel the water. We go down into the water. We come out of the water. We are wet. Baptism reprograms not just the software, but the hardware as well as the software of our imagination about who we are. I think it's important. I hope this morning that your understanding of baptism has grown beyond simply an outward sign of an inward commitment. And if that's what we have, it's no wonder we have difficulty understanding our union with Christ. It, it misses the very ritual that displays our being joined to Him in His death, burial, and resurrection. It misses the enacted origin story of who we are and how we became who we are by being joined to Christ. Baptism is the ritual act of our adoption. And that leads to our third heading this morning. Responsibility and reason. When we were adopted, we were given responsibility Or to put it another way from God's vantage point, he had a reason to adopt us. He had a purpose, if you will, in adopting us. (coughs) Let's begin in Ephesians. At the very end of verse 4, we'll begin reading, In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ 
in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. And then jumping down to verse 18, when Paul is now praying for these adopted sons and daughters of God, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. And then in chapter 2, verse 10, For we are God's handiwork, or creation, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I want to explore another aspect of adoption that I only alluded to last week, and that has to do with the purpose of adoption. Immediately after the praise of verses 3 through 14, when Paul is praying for the church, he prays three things. He prays first, that they would be enabled to know the Father better. Makes sense. They've been adopted. They should know the Father better. He prays thirdly, I'm jumping to third, yes. Thirdly, that they would know the power that is available for us who believe. So that we too would know the power that is available for us who believe. But then in the middle of that, that they would know the riches of the Father's inheritance in and for the saints. How do we have an inheritance? Because we are adopted. Because we are adopted, we are heirs. Now today, in 2023, being an heir really only has benefits or responsibilities. It really only matters when the parent in question dies. Right? I mean, you don't really get the inheritance until they've gone. It's the way that works. But not so in the ancient world. We would say no one is heir to the living, but they would not have said so. The, the primary purpose of adoption in the Roman world was not to gain a child or the, for the child to get a much-needed parent. And we talked about this last week. It, it, it had little to do with that because most of the time it wasn't children who were adopted. It was adults who were adopted. You might wonder, why would you adopt adults? Well, because adoption had a whole different purpose. It wasn't a need for either a child or a parent. That was the primary motivation. And in fact, rarely was that an involved aspect of adoption. There's another reason. <clears throat> it was generally, uh, as, well, one scholar puts it this way. <coughs> the, 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 the purpose was to get an heir. One scholar puts it this way. In Roman, in Roman law, the heir was understood to be the embodiment of the testator. The one, the one that they're inheriting from. The embodiment of the testator. The father lived on, so to speak, in the son. Not from the time of the father's death, but from the time of the son's adoption. Birth or adoption, we could say. In the case of adoption, it would be adoption. So, so the heir was to be this embodiment of the father, if you will. <clears throat> in other words, birth or adoption rather than death put one's role as an heir into effect which is why the New Testament makes much about the fact that we are heirs of God. That has meaning in the New Testament world. We think of it, oh yes, when I die and go to heaven, as if somehow when I die I get the inheritance. We kind of reverse that in our logic. But we don't know what else to do with it, you know, so we just kind of... But no, we're heirs now, and that has an impact on who we are and what we're called to do and what our purpose is in this world. The fact that we have been adopted as God's son, the church has been adopted as God's son, as Israel had been adopted as God's son, 
means that we, the members of the church, are heirs of God's, as God's holy people and that we have a role and responsibilities as God's holy priesthood in the world. Put another way, the fact that we are chosen by God isn't about our specialness. Oh, isn't that special? We're chosen. No, it's about the fact that God has called us to be his agents in the world. Israel was chosen to be a royal priesthood, and so are we as God's adopted heirs. What does it mean to be an heir? In order to understand our role as heirs in God's household, we need to understand a Roman household rather than an American household. Because they would have thought not about an American household, surprise, surprise, but about a Roman household. We think of a household as ideally a father and mother with their children. It varies, of course, in broken homes. But in a Roman household, it included multiple generations, not just relatives, but also hired hands, servants, slaves, and anyone dependent upon the father of that household for sustenance. Today, we've depersonalized it. We seek jobs with benefits. Health insurance is at the top of the list, but retirement benefits are good as well. And there are others. Or else we become the owner of a business and find ourselves in the father role of providing benefits. This depersonalization has something to do with the disintegration of community in our culture, but that's for another day. The household included more than heirs, is my point. We are heirs of God as his church, but the household includes not just heirs. Think about that for a second. The heirs had a responsibility to everyone else in the household. We, the church, have a responsibility to everyone else in God's big household. What is God's household? This explains why in chapter 2, Paul reminds us that in our new birth, our recreation, we're created for good works, which he's prepared in advance that we should walk in them. Or, more specifically, what he tells the Galatians, which also talks about adoption, to do that he tells them to do good to all people, especially those of the household of faith. So, do good to all people, not just heirs, but everyone else too. Not just the relatives, but everyone else too. Or as one scholar put it, the household of faith, quote, defines only the minimum of love's response, not its farthest extent. Only the minimum, not its farthest extent. And the household of faith, those are the believers. Those are the heirs. But God's household ultimately can go much beyond that because he's the father of all things. He created all things. And the Bible uses, speaks of it in both ways. Trevor Burke, in his excellent book, Adopted into God's Family, <coughs> he writes this, quote, It is worth noting that a father in the ancient world was primarily responsible for ensuring harmony and agreement among the household members, But equally, all offspring, including adopted sons, were responsible for ensuring that they did not do anything that would cause discord or bring the family name into disrepute. This explains why Paul makes this unity idea central in Ephesians. You've got to pursue the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. I mean, we're to earnestly seek or pursue the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Why? Because we're heirs of God. And that was one of the key and primary responsibilities of an heir in the ancient world, is to keep unity in the family. As heirs, 
basically breaking this down in three ways. As heirs, it is essential that we look after the family, uphold the honor of the family name, which we're told to pray, Our Father, may your name be hallowed, or your name must be hallowed. Recently taught on that. The very first thing, as adopted sons and daughters, Our Father, your name must be hallowed. Making sure his name does not fall into disrepute. And then work feverishly to maintain unity. So uh, uh, look after the family, uphold the honor of the family name, and, and maintain unity in the family. Those are the three aspects of what it means to be an heir specifically in the Roman world. And it's why we have some of our missional priorities, such as gospel mercy, caring for the poor in the household of faith and the broader household. Gospel outreach. We have, we have a mission as a kingdom of priests mediating God to the world. We carry on God's mission into the world to redeem it, both specifically in our community, neighborhood, if you will, and beyond. Gospel unity. Not just unity among us, but unity in the body of Christ in our city and in the world. These, these things grow out of our responsibility as adopted sons and daughters of God. How meaningful, <coughs> excuse me, how meaningful has your baptism been to you? How does it shape your imagination about who you are? What does it say about who you are? I hope today at least we've filled out some of what it says about who you are, and maybe we've opened your imagination to begin to think about what it means about who you are, what your identity in Christ is. And that if it hasn't been meaningful, and maybe it has for many, but that it would become meaningful. In a big way. Do you see yourself as part of the new creation that began with the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Do you understand it was your being united with Christ and therefore his church, which he has chosen Jew and Gentile alike, for being his heirs, his household managers, if you will, that that it is he's chosen you to extend his care to the world, to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Have you thought of the fact that as an heir of God, you're not only his child and that you are, but you also have responsibilities for which he has adopted you? A role, a place, a purpose that God has for you. Have you taken these things seriously? I pray that we do. And as we pray... I pray that it would be informed with even more meaning when we pray, Our Father, may your name be hallowed. May it not be blasphemed because of us, but be highly regarded because of us. Because that is our responsibility as heirs. As we do your will in earth as it is in heaven, that your kingdom might manifest itself among us. Thanks be to God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, you have brought us together as children in your family. You've adopted us as your own. You've given us an adoption ritual. We call it baptism. Lord, in which we 
bodily enact our dying to our old life and our being raised to a new life, our being raised as a brand new creature in a new family. Lord, may, may we reflect meaningfully upon that event in our lives because of its significance. And maybe you don't remember the day you were baptized. But Lord, help us all to remember that the day we were baptized actually occurred about 2,000 years ago on Golgotha when Christ was crucified and buried. And then on the third day raised to new life. That is the day that the new creation began, that our new life began in the one body of Christ. In Jesus' name. Amen.